Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Well, today I am sitting in the middle of our coffee shop slash cafe, and some of you are having like mid-COVID flashbacks because this is where we filmed a lot of messages when we were on lockdown during the pandemic. And the reason why I am back here is because this past Sunday, we had a small fire that broke out on the side of our stage. And so we had to evacuate the building before I could actually preach and we could record the sermon. And so we ended up hosting outdoor services, which some of you got a chance to be here for. But that meant that this content never went online, didn't hit our podcast until now. As our team was sort of reflecting on it, we just decided the things that we were going to share during this series were so significant and had the power to help people in such big ways that we didn't want to just skip over it. And so I decided to take part of my week this week and re-record this message so that you could watch it for the first time or go back and review it for the parts that will stand out to you or that you need to hear again, or even share it with a friend that you feel like it might impact. But for now, we are going to jump into week one of How to Be Happy. And I think the title speaks for itself, but maybe you're wondering, like, why do a series on this topic? I mean, I guess on a surface level, it sort of feels like, well, of course, everybody wants to be happy, but why talk about this subject in church? Because in order to bring this conversation into a church and have it with our whole congregation, we have to answer this bigger question of, does God care about happiness? Like, does God care if people are happy? Does God want people to be happy? And part of the reason why we need to begin here is that there are really two camps of thought that are really far apart from each other. And you could find groups of Christians who believe each thing. On one side, you may have a group of Christians that are just like, listen, God does not care about your happiness. All he cares about is your holiness. And, you know, happiness is in direct opposition to holiness, obviously. And so if you ever feel a little bit happy, it's probably because you're doing something wrong. Like you are steeped in sin and you need to completely change your life. On the other side, you can find a whole other category of Christians that would tell you almost the exact and extreme opposite, that not only does God want you to be happy, God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be powerful. He wants you to be in control and in charge. And in fact, if you don't have your own private jet by the age of 40, like, what are you doing? I mean, (laughs) are you even really serving God? And I bring both of these extremes up because I think that they're both completely wrong. And so what is right? What is true? What is accurate when it comes to scripture and God's perspective of happiness? There are over 2,700 passages in the Bible using words like joy, happiness, pleasure, gladness, laughter, and the list goes on and on. And these, most of these aren't passages warning us against these things. They're passages defining these things and explaining how we can tap into them. To even move beyond that, if you've done some devotional reading in the book of Psalms or Proverbs, maybe you've noticed that there are so many lines that begin with this interesting phrase, happy is the person who, right? So it's almost like this idea of like happy people do these sorts of things. They think in these sorts of ways. They conduct their life. They have these sorts of habits. And even beyond that, if you look at at Jesus's most famous sermon, it opens with this section called the Beatitudes, which you probably heard of like, 
Um, blessed are those who, and that word that gets translated into English as blessed, the root word of the original word used really just means happy. And just so that we're not confused about God's perspective on this, Jesus says something that just sort of clears it up. In John 10, 10, he says this, that, that my purpose is to give people a rich and satisfying life. Again, that's not the only way that this this phrase is translated. Sometimes it's translated as life to the full. Maybe you've heard that or, or a joyful and abundant life or more and better life than you could ever dream. It sounds like Jesus is interested in people enjoying their existence, but there's still a big question that remains. Like, what do we mean by happiness? Right? Are we all even talking about the same thing when we use that word? So I want to just start the series by giving you a base definition of what happiness actually is. Happiness is the experience of joy, contentment, and optimism connected to the belief that your life is good, valuable, and meaningful. So it, it's not just a simple spike of pleasure or a steady string of emotional highs. It's something much bigger and broader and deeper. And maybe you're like, well, great. Okay. So like, we want to be happy. God wants us to be happy. Like, why don't we all just decide to be happy and be happy? Have you ever had someone tell you that before? Just, just, just be happy. And I wonder if you punched that person. Maybe you wanted to, but didn't and held it in. That's probably a good thing. But you probably had the thought of like, I feel like I've tried to be happy, but just trying to will it into existence hasn't really worked for me. So what's wrong with me? I mean, is it really that easy and I just can't seem to do it? Doesn't it seem like, like some people are just inherently happier than others? Is that really true though? I mean, are, are they just like faking it? I mean, some of them are, just to be real with you. Some of them are faking it, but as it turns out, some people are sort of rigged to be naturally happier than others. We don't even all have the same exact capacity or tendency to be happy. In fact, there's this growing body of research that reveals that human happiness, like height or IQ, lies on this continuum from really, really low to really, really high. And what a lot of scientists now believe that that sort of contributes to our happiness boils down to three things. Now, I'm going to attach some percentages to these on a pie graph just to sort of simplify it and make it make sense to you. But these aren't exact percentages. This just gives you a ballpark uh, so you can sort of understand this big picture thing. About 50% of whether or not we are happy is biological. That means that half your happiness is somewhat determined by your genetic code, your inherited biology, your brain chemistry, your default personality, the way your early upbringing imprinted on you neurologically. Some of us have biology that actually leans us in a direction of pessimism and sadness and suspicion and anxiety. The second category is circumstantial. So things like how healthy you are at a given moment or how much money you have or what you look like and your relational status. Now, the thing that is crazy to me about this is that even if you are able to somehow align everything in your life exactly how you want it, that is still only likely to give you at maximum a 10% bump in happiness. How crazy is that? I mean, it's a little bit 
of a bummer considering how much time and energy so many of us spend on trying to arrange the circumstances of our existence just so. This means that like if you were able to like get the exact abs that you wanted and you were able to like lose the double chin and you were able to like get into that neighborhood that you've always wanted to live in and obtain that car and get that person to fall in love with you, that if you got everything to align all at once circumstantially, that maximum people would be like, wow, you've been working for 40 years on aligning these circumstances. How did it work? And you'd be like, yeah, give me about 8%, about 8% happiness, which feels like a bummer. And it is. And maybe you're looking at these first two categories and just being like, why are we even doing this series? I mean, it just feels like, like I'm doomed. But here's the upside. Researchers believe that about 40% of our happiness is habitual, meaning that it is determined by the way you think uh, about and live your day-to-day -day life, how you arrange your schedule, what people you put around you, what foods and substances you put in your body, where you focus your thoughts, what endeavors you pursue. The, the thing that's even more interesting about this is that like what we do with our habits actually impact our circumstances and affect our biology and which parts of our biology or our genes are turned on and off. And the thing I want to encourage you with is that 40% is a big margin. That means that like regardless of whatever genetics you happen to inherit or whatever circumstances you are currently experiencing, you still have a lot of power to impact the way you feel about and experience your life. And as it turns out, much of the wisdom in all of scripture is aimed at that 40%, at helping us be intentional about the beliefs and behaviors we build our lives upon. And that's what this series is gonna be about, about wrestling with this question of, how does the way of Jesus lead us to live a rich and satisfying life by helping us to maximize the 40% of happiness that we actually have the power to impact on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, uh, if we dive into the research, quite a bit of happiness has to do with how and what you think. That happy people have three specific mental habits. One, they avoid overthinking. Two, they express gratitude. And three, they cultivate optimism. I know some of you are like, those are like three things I'm not great at, okay? I'm, I'm zero for three on this thing. But that's why we're going to talk about it, because if they're habits, it means that you can develop them. It means that you can practice them. It means that you can lean into them and you can leverage them to change everything else about your existence. One of the things I find fascinating about this is that one of the very first pastors in the New Testament, he, he wrote to this group of people and he, he was trying to get them to understand the rich and satisfying life that Jesus came to give us and how to actually live it out. And in his writings, in fact, in this one little specific riff of his writings, he named all three of these things that come from the research that we just cited. It's found in the book of Philippians chapter 4 starting in verse four, and it says this, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice, express gratitude. Don't worry. In other words, avoid overthinking about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him, express gratitude for all he has done. And then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand, right? That's true happiness. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. In other words, cultivate optimism. Like, isn't it interesting that 
a, a Jesus-following pastor over 2,000 years ago in a pre-science world, what he tells us to do to experience joy is exactly what modern scientists are telling us to do in order to be happy. It, it all points to this reality that a rich and satisfying life has a lot to do with the way you think, with how you process the past, the present, and the future. Now, before I tell you exactly how that works, I, I want to just start by defining what we mean by these things. When we say things like overthinking, gratitude, and optimism. Overthinking is excessively and anxiously replaying and analyzing the meanings, causes, and consequences of your past. Some of you are thinking like, this is my number one hobby. I am so good at this. It's the moment, right? Where right after something happens, you, you find yourself, you know, getting in the car and just being like, what in the, what did I just, why did I say that? That was so, that, she's never going to go out with me again. Like uh, she's going to totally think that I meant this and I meant that other thing. And then this is going to happen and that's going to trigger this other thing. And that's going to cause this other deal. And like, I should have done that. And I should have said this. And it's just, I, I'm, I'm such an idiot and I'm never going to get called back and I'm never going to get the job and I'm going to lose everything and everything's going to collapse and, 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 and fall down and implode on itself. That's which is why I need to go by the store and get some ice cream right now. And for a lot of us, this is the, the sort of habit that is tanking our happiness. So what is gratitude? Gratitude is identifying, appreciating, and celebrating the good in and around you. It's being able to notice that everything isn't doomed even when everything isn't going the way you want it to. That there are good things that God is doing around you and it's easy to take those things for granted, especially when the news notifications that are pinging in on our phone constantly are not great news. And for some of us, we can sort of identify that there's some good around us, but it's much harder for us to identify the good in us because we don't have the greatest perspective of ourselves. We see ourselves as you know, the problem as someone who is broken, as someone who has virtually nothing good about them. Gratitude is acknowledging the good in and around us and focusing in on those things. And then this third thing, optimism. Optimism is excitedly expecting a future worth looking forward to and diligently working toward. It's genuinely believing that the future is not doomed, that, that God is good, that he is in control of the universe, and that he's, he's leading it somewhere good. And again, optimism can take place on both a, a, a micro and a macro level. Sometimes like micro optimism is just the awareness that even though today isn't going well, that tonight is taco night. Tacos are a little thing, but they are worth getting excited about and looking forward to and preparing for. I'm gonna stop and get the good tortillas on the way home. And it gives us this little spark of joy, knowing that we get to have this incredible meal and celebrate it with people that we actually like. Or there could be larger level uh, optimism, which is that like my life is not doomed, that I actually have a purpose, that, that God wants to utilize me up ahead to do something that is meaningful and makes a difference in the world that the whole world isn't doomed, that God has a plan to restore and revitalize and redeem the things that are broken in existence. And he wants to use you and me to do that thing, to be a part of that thing. Now, when you put all three of these things together, they give us a unique perspective on how God is wanting to change the way we think 
about everything. Avoiding overthinking is how we prevent being paralyzed by our past. Expressing gratitude is how we make the most of our present. And cultivating optimism is how God encourages us to frame our future. In other words, what, what all this is telling us is that happiness is a product of focus, not facts. Now, this doesn't mean that facts are not important, but it just means that whether or not you experience happiness has more to do with the facts that you focus on. Because there's too much that's true about the world to see everything. And some of us are deeply unhappy, not because of the facts we're focused on, but because of the untruths that we're dialed into. Happiness is a product of aiming our focus in the right direction. So I want to just contextualize this by pointing out how it plays out in this really interesting story in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. This is what the story says. The king of Aram had a great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him, the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Leprosy was a death sentence. It was one of the worst things that you could imagine being diagnosed with during this day and age. It meant a slow, grotesque death. Basically, your pain sensors malfunction and your body is unable to signal you that something is wrong internally or externally. On the surface, it's like, oh, that'd be great. I wouldn't have to ever experience pain, but it would be horrible to hurt yourself and not know you're hurt and continue to hurt yourself worse by carrying on as if you weren't hurt, but you really are. People that had leprosy would become disfigured. Their bodies would rot out from underneath them. Not only that, there was a lot of fear. If someone had leprosy, like you got to get get them away from you. You don't want to catch it. So if you had leprosy, you would sort of naturally want to hide it. And I bring this story up because right off the bat, it, it just feels like biologically and circumstantially, this guy is not really set up for a whole lot of happiness. It feels like, like man, I, you know, I'm, I'm prone to get this horrible disease that there's no real cure for that anybody knows of. The circumstances of my life are horrible, not what I want at all. Like I'm doomed. It would have been easy for him to, to just give up. And yet the story doesn't stop here. It goes on to say this in verse two that Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. And among their captives was a young girl who'd been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. And so Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said, go visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. And so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha is this great, famous prophet in the land of Israel, and God had accomplished so many amazing miracles through him. And Naaman goes. And I bring this up because I think this action is rooted in optimism. If Naaman didn't believe a bright future was even possible, he'd have no reason to even start the journey. Like there'd be no point to doing anything or trying anything or risking anything. But, but even in the face of death, Naaman believes that better is possible and worth pursuing. But I want to be really clear here. Healthy optimism doesn't deny reality or trust blindly. 
It, it doesn't pretend that nothing's ever wrong or that everything will automatically turn out right. That's not optimism. That's toxic positivity. And some of us have been so inundated with toxic positivity that, that, that any sort of optimism just feels like off limits to us. We don't want to have anything to do with it because we've defined it incorrectly, but we're not happy. It's not working. And I wonder if Naaman had any of these people in his circle, people that when he said like, guys, I, um, I'm dying of leprosy, people that were like, no, you're not. That's not true. Don't say that, young man. No, no, it, I, it's, it, it is true. That, that actually, that's really happening. Don't be so negative. I mean, a, a terminal diagnosis is pretty negative. I mean, I'm just like, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just acknowledging something that isn't maybe inherently automatically positive. Well, I mean, look at the bright side. Can I have five minutes? to just process the dark side first. I mean, I, I haven't even gotten to feel or acknowledge that this is horrible and, and scary and uncomfortable. Well, I mean, it could be worse. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it could be worse. Leprosy is pretty bad though, okay? My foot fell off this morning, all right? That's pretty, that's rough stuff. Well, listen, everything is gonna work out all right, except that it probably won't. Literally everyone I have ever known of that had leprosy died a horrible death because of it. It doesn't feel like it's going to work out. It feels like I'm doomed. Some of you like this conversation feels really familiar to you. Maybe you have certain people in your circle that just refuse to let you express anything that isn't incredibly and completely positive. I think some people around you may insist that you always be positive because they don't know how to process anything negative. They push all that stuff down, and so they feel like you should have to do the same too. But it doesn't work. It all ends up coming back up or coming back out in some other weird way. You see, healthy optimism doesn't do that. Healthy optimism acknowledges the complexity of the present. It acknowledges that things are not great, that, that there are no easy answers, that there isn't a quick fix to this situation, that it is horribly disappointing. But it moves beyond that. It envisions a better future and it begins to take action in that direction, that God does have something better and brighter up ahead, that God hasn't abandoned us, that there is still hope. And I, I can't do everything. It's not gonna happen overnight, but I can move in that direction. It places one foot in front of the other and moves forward. It says that once Naaman gets to this place where the prophet is, it says that Elisha sent a messenger down to him with this message. I mean, a little bit of a bummer. The guy doesn't even come down himself after he travels all this way. And this is the message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and then your skin will be restored and you'll be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. He says, I thought he would certainly have come out to meet me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and, and call on the name of the Lord, maybe a little abracadabra, a little poof, a little, I don't know if a hanky is involved, and yeah, I would just magically be healed. I mean, aren't the rivers where we're from better than any of the rivers here in Israel? I mean, why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? And so Naaman turned and went away in a rage. I'm ashamed to say how many times I've, I've done this exact thing. You ever read stuff about a Bible character and you're like, I mean, those people are so immature. I'm way beyond that stuff. And yet everyone around you is like, not really. 
because this is just a picture of humanity. It's, it's interesting because Naaman, he goes to get a solution. He knew it was probably going to be quirky based on Elisha's reputation, but he doesn't like the solution that he gets from the person that he wanted it from. And in fact, he feels insulted by it, partially because the guy doesn't even come downstairs to look him in the eye and talk to him face to face, partially because the thing that he tells him to do is like a gross, dirty thing. The Jordan River is not like a clean river. It's kind of a, a toilet river. And he's like, yeah, just go dunk in the, the toilet river. It's super, super simple. And so what does he do? He excessively and anxiously replays and analyzes the meanings, causes, and consequences of the conversation, right? It tells us exactly what he says. He's like, I thought he would have done this. I expected him to do that. Why shouldn't I be able to do it this way? He didn't like the result, and so he ruminates on it. He overthinks it, and he starts to emotionally spiral. And the more he replays what he didn't like about it, the angrier he gets, Some of us, like, we do this a lot. And what you may not know is that you can get high off of it. You can actually get emotionally high off of hate. And although you can experience a high from it, it's not helpful or healthy. Like a lot of things that people use to get high, right? In fact, studies show that the more we ruminate and overthink things that we wish would have gone or been different, the more stuck we become in our current mindset or set of circumstances. Because once we start spiraling in that headspace, it's difficult for us to overcome even the smallest of obstacles or take on any of the, even, even the most tiniest of tasks. And you've been there, right? Like you're you're replaying the thing that's making you angry or depressed over and over and over again. And it just feels like doing anything but that is impossible, including like all the things that have the best chance of making this thing that you're stuck in the middle of a little bit better in this moment. You completely worn yourself out ruminating. And this is what happens to Naaman. But the people around him love him so much that they don't let him stay in that place. In verse 13, it says that his officers tried to reason with him. They say, if the prophet would have told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done that? Like if it was something heroic and exciting, if they had told you to like go slay a dragon, even though you're pretty sure dragons don't exist, you would have been like, let's do it. So since you would have done that, shouldn't you certainly obey him when he says simply go and wash and be cured? They're essentially saying to him, listen, the reason you don't want to do it is because you think it's beneath you. You think the thing that's actually going to help you is below you. And I got to tell you guys, the more I research happiness, the more this reveals itself to be the truth, that a lot of the things that actually help us move forward and and boost how happy we actually are, are such little things that we're just like, that's dumb. That's too little to make such a big difference. I shouldn't have to do that. That's a stupid thing. That's a little thing. That's something everybody knows how to do, but nobody does it. Of course, Naaman, he, he just can't think clearly. He can't summon any sense of optimism. And so he leans on the people around him to do it for him. And you need people in your life that will do this for you too, that will come alongside you in a really dark moment and not minimize your devastation or disappointment that will acknowledge how hard uh, a space that you're in right now and how heavy it feels but will help you to slowly begin to envision a better future and and what action you could take in the here and now in that direction. And, and And the really good friends, the really good mentors will actually 
go with you. They will take those first couple steps with you. In fact, all of the people with Naaman, they go with him down to the river. They walk him there. They help him take the first few steps because they know if he can just take the first few, he'll be motivated to take the rest. And he does. Verse 14, it tells us that Naaman went down to the Jordan River and he dipped seven times and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. And that's just a great like turn of phrase, a compliment to give. Like your skin looks as healthy as that of a young child. What creams are you using? And honestly, it's just toilet water from the Jordan River. That's what's happening in this story. And then right after he experiences healing, he goes back to Elisha and tries to give him a gift. Why? Because he's so grateful. He doesn't want to let his gratitude go unexpressed because he's aware of what we could skim over in this story. Naaman didn't heal himself. God healed him. And in the same way, you can't completely heal yourself, but you have a part to play. God doesn't want to just do something for you. He wants to do something with you. He wants you to partner with him in the process of your own healing. That means there's going to be something that you have to do. There's going to be a habit that you're going to have to lean into in order to to set the stage for God to do a miracle inside of you. And although Naaman struggled every single step of the way, which is what I love about the story, right? It's like, he's so human. It's like, oh, he's doing kind of good. Now he's kind of like off the rails again. Oh, he's, he's taking action steps. Now he thinks everything's hopeless again. Like, oh, he hates this thing. Oh, good thing he's got those friends around him that are encouraging him in this direction, right? Isn't that what your life feels like? It's what my life feels like. I love this because it's so incredibly human and it's hopeful at the same time. He manages in this story to do every single thing that the writer of Philippians suggests that we do, and modern science confirms. He overcomes his overthinking. He leans into gratitude and enough optimism to take action in a way that would rearrange the circumstances in his life. And more importantly, it rearranged his perspective in life. Like after his healing, as the story goes, he restructures his entire life around the God of Israel around drawing attention to his hope and his healer. And what's crazy is when he enters into these habits of thinking differently and and acting on that thinking differently, notice what happens. It, It has an impact on his circumstances and an impact on his biology. Like you're not doomed if those things are stacked against you. Your habits and aligning your habits with heaven those things can transform all 100% of your life. So let me just bring it down to the level of you and me. If you want to be happy, what I would suggest is focus on the facts that help you take action in the direction of health, hope, and wholeness. Because again, there are way too many things happening around us to focus on all of them. What would it look like for you to focus on things that inspired you to develop habits that are healthy, to develop habits that are pointed at hope, to develop habits that will, as you do them day by day, week by week, year by year, will make you the whole person that you were designed to be. So how do you do this practically? I'm going to just give you three suggestions. The first thing I would suggest is to avoid overthinking, schedule, indulge, and distract. What do I mean by that? Literally schedule some time to worry, obsess, and play out scenarios. 
Now that sounds crazy, but research studies prove that this actually helps us to deal with and process instead of push down or obsess over these things. Take 15 or 20 minutes a day, put it on your calendar, set a timer, and probably write out everything that you're frustrated about and annoyed about and what's weighing on you and what's heavy on your heart and and why you're so annoyed about it and what you think they should have done and said. And then when the timer goes off, you're done. You set it aside. Maybe you even throw it away or burn it because you don't need it. It's just a way of processing through it. And it gives you the ability with the rest of your life when a negative, pessimistic thought rolls up into your mind to just say like, "Mm, man, that's actually going to paralyze me, not push me forward. And I I don't really have time for that right now, but it's, it's on my schedule. It's on my schedule for later. So I will get to it. And when we get to it, a lot of the things we were initially angry about, the moment has passed. We're able to see it for what it is and not the emotionally hyperactive situation we felt it to be in the moment. And the other thing that happens is we're more sober in that moment, emotionally speaking, to be able to to actually pick it apart, analyze it, and and work towards a, a real solution as opposed to just dwelling on it and becoming angry and raging out about it. And then the next thing to do is to distract yourself. Like when you've reached that time limit or when that thought pops up to distract yourself by something that makes you feel happy or curious or calm or amused or proud to switch gears. The second thing I would suggest is to express your gratitude, reflect, list, and verbalize. Choose a day and time each week to do nothing but express gratitude. Take an an hour on one day a week to, to sit down and make a list of three to five or 10 or however many you feel like things that you are truly grateful for that particular week. They could be big things or small things. They could be people or places or experiences. You wanna get as detailed as possible about these things. And then I wanna encourage you to verbalize it, to express the gratitude, not just experience it. Write a note to that person or text them or send them an email or buy them a small gift to let them know that you are thankful for them. The more specific you get, about your gratitude, especially if it's towards another person, the better it is for you and for them. And the third thing I want to encourage you to do is to cultivate optimism, identify, reframe, and rehearse. Sit down and think about a situation that brings you anxiety. And some of you are like, I got one. I, that's easy for me. First step, I'm, I was doing while you were talking. But don't stop there. Look at that thing and, and begin to identify the negative or fearful thoughts that are connected to it. What is it that you're really anxious about? It's not the situation. It's, it's whatever fear that thing is triggering inside of you and, and the ripple effect that you're convinced it's going to have. And then begin to ask yourself, what else could that mean? I mean, I'm interpreting it this way, but what else could it possibly mean? And and are there any opportunities or lessons that this situation or this conversation uh, presents to me? If you write out the other set of facts about this situation, not alternative facts, just things that you're ignoring that are also true about this situation, you can begin to flip the script. You can begin to exchange your internal monologue for something that is healthier and more Christ-like. A lot of us, we have trouble flipping the script on our thoughts because we have never written out a script of new thoughts. And then rehearse those things. The more you say them to yourself, the more you listen to yourself, say them or read them out loud, the more natural and reflexive optimism is going to feel in your life. In fact, that is the great thing about all three of these things. The more you do them, the easier they become. And the easier it is for you to tap into them and naturally be that way instead of fighting to be that way. 
Maybe you're thinking, that's great, but how does Jesus help us with all this? And I would tell you in every imaginable way, because you cannot do this without him. You could get a little bit further down the road, but you, you can't completely change all of these things and all these areas about yourself without his supernatural help. But I gotta tell you, when you open yourself up to a real relationship with Jesus, you begin to realize that he has already freed you from your past that he is with you in the present and that he is filling your future with possibility. And because these things are true, you can lean on him to help you think differently about everything, to avoid overthinking, to express gratitude and to cultivate optimism in your life. As you lean into these things, as you allow him to renew your mind by practicing these happy habits, you begin to step into and experience the rich and satisfying life you long for, the one that Jesus came to gift you with. And that's what we're all after. You see, your life is not hopeless. No matter what your biology says, no matter what your circumstantial situation says, you can begin to shift your habits and to begin to build your beliefs and your behavior on what God says is true about you, about the universe, about everything. And when you do this, it begins to transform your experience of life. And that's why I'm gonna pray into your life today. Would you bow your head with me wherever you are, unless you're driving at this moment and let's pray. God, thank you so much for the life you give us and for the way in which you show us how to live life to the full. I love it that your expectation of us is not just to sort of limp along this life and survive and, and but be miserable, but, but you want us to enjoy our existence. And in fact, you sent your son to show us the way. And God, I pray that, that you would enable those of us who this is not easy for to prioritize these habits that as we partner with you, as we do the things, even little things that you've called us to do one day at a time, that you would do the big things that we can't do. And God, help us to experience the rich and satisfying life, the abundant and enjoyable life that you came to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.